If you enjoyed the channel and our video content and would like to support us, you can do this in a couple of ways. You can sign up to our Patreon site which is a monthly subscription to one of our four tiers, each giving you something different from early access interviews up to exclusive unseen footage. There's also the option of a one-off donation via PayPal which allows you the option to donate an amount of your choice. Both options really help to keep this channel going and to continue putting out regular content for you good folk. So please take a look at aircurrentreview.tv forward slash donate and I thank you in advance. Thank you and enjoy. So Tug, when did you first become interested in aviation? Um, I think um, my earliest memory is watching Neil Armstrong walk on the moon, so I, I figured I'd, I was going to be an astronaut, um, as all kids did at that time. Um, but my, my father was a, uh, an armourer in the Air Force, and after he left, he, he couldn't let it go, and he, he kept taking us to air shows. And growing up in North Yorkshire, there was Finningley, Church Fenton. Church Fenton was a massive air show in those days. And I just remember going year after year after year, and, uh, and it just kind of got under your skin. The, the jets looked spectacular. Uh, the two stars of the show were always the Vulcan and the Lightning. And, um, and I, I just thought that would be such a cool thing to, uh, uh, to do. Never once thinking I'd, I'd be able to, uh, to get there, but th that's where it all started from, I think. So when did you join the RAF and can you talk us through some of the aircraft you started your initial training on? Yeah, I joined the aircraft on the 30th of September 1985, it's etched, in, etched into, my, uh, into my brain. Um, I was a, um, I bombed my A-levels at school, so I was, I was what we call a direct entrance, I didn't go through university, hence I didn't fly a single minute before uh, coming into the Air Force. So first off um, I did elementary flying training on the venerable chipmunk. Uh, which was real old uh, Spitfire Battle Britain type aeroplane, uh, you know, for a trainer. Um, did about 65 hours on that, I think, and then a long one-year course on the Jet Provost Mark III. Um, everybody joined as a fast jet pilot in those days, and if you passed the JP3 course, you went on to the faster JP5. Uh, to do what was called Group 1 Phase 1, so I, was a, I did a fair bit of time on that. I then got the dream to go to Valley and fly the Hawk T1, um, and that's where I got my wings in June of 88, I, I got my wings. And then um, having had a brilliant time getting those wings, I then went on to fly the Hawk T1A at Chivener uh, at TAC Weapons, and that was an absolute bloodbath. It was almost <laughs> like a survival course. Um, and got uh, by that time, I I wanted to fly the Phantom and um, got my dream posting and and the rest is history from uh, from then on, you know. Yeah. So why did you want to uh, go and fly the Phantom and not the Jag or the Harrier, for instance? Uh, first off, I was pretty rubbish at ground attack. Um, <laughs> uh, I wasn't going to um, worry that uh, that world. Uh, I got my teeth into air combat and intercepts at TAC weapons. Leading up to TAC weapons, I, I, I didn't care what I flew. I just wanted to fly something fast at the, at the front line. But it wasn't until you sampled kind of what the front line did at TAC weapons training that you, you found you either, either had a knack for one side or the other. And um, an air defense and air combat were my things. I'm not saying I was any good at them. I just, uh, I just really loved them. And out of the instructors at TAC Weapons, it seemed that the uh, Phantom guys seemed to be the guys who were having the most amount of fun. Um, when I went into TAC Weapons, they were still taking Lightning pilots, just, oh, wow. and that was my absolute dream. It really was. 
uh, but they they've been that about a month after I started TAC weapons I think so next next best thing was the uh, was the Phantom and and there we are so what you have uh, your first thoughts on the F4 oh it frightened the living daylights out of me I mean, <laughs> and when it was uh, it was huge uh, compared to anything I'd ever flown before. The Hawk, you kind of strap onto yourself. Uh, this thing, you had to climb up steps to get into it. You know, it was just uh, unbelievably uh, big and noisy and ugly, and it looked like it meant business, you know. So that my first impressions were, uh, I've got no hope of, of taming this, but um, but it was, uh, it, it was just a, it just looked like it was a war machine, so why wouldn't you want to have a go in that, you know? But that, those are my first impressions, mm -hmm. yeah. Frightened to death. <laughs> so can you talk us through some of your initial training, and did you take uh, to the jet naturally? Um, I think, uh, answer the first thing first, I, I don't think I ever took to any aeroplane naturally. I, I'm a bit of a, um, I suppose you'd call me a slow burn. Um, it takes a lot of hard work for me to get uh, involved with an aeroplane. And then I start to uh, get to grips with it after that. So to start with, we do a lot of simulators um, uh, first off, uh, just learning, uh, basically checks, start up, shut down, uh, flying the thing around without crashing it, lots of instrument flying. Uh, and then we went into things like basic intercept style training on ground trainers. Take the aeroplane airborne, you find that everything you learnt in the sim has uh, fallen out of your brain uh, without, you, uh, without you knowing and it was all a bit of a shocker at the start but it generally general handling to start with um, circuits are a big, uh, big deal and something like a Phantom which, uh, which was reasonably difficult to fly I think especially at low speed um, so lots of circuit uh, flying then you move on to formation close formation, tactical formations and then we get into the meat of uh, the navigator students then using the radar and, uh, and us doing the job that we're probably going to do for the rest of our lives which is intercepts and air combat so that, that's the general progression. You start off with I, I would say relatively easy stuff but it's not mm -hmm. um, and then the more confident you get then they introduce the harder, harder stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how did the F4 handle? Um, I guess everybody would say at low speed like a pig um, so you had to really concentrate um, all the time that you're in the in the circuit angle of attack um, is how you fly these aeroplanes we don't fly them on speeds really we fly them on angle of attack which is the angle of the leading edge to the airflow um, sort of thing so all fast jets fly on angle of attack uh, and if you exceeded the angle of attack at, at low speed um, the thing would depart and and you would uh, you'd be banging out at, uh, at best so um so a lot of worries I, w I would say to start with when you when you're down there um as soon as it uh, I, I think with all fast jets as soon as it gets some speed under its uh, under its belt um it was it was brilliant you know it was it took my breath away it, it really did and the the more confident i got with it i think the more confident it got with me um it kind of worked out uh, i wasn't trying to rip it apart and so it stopped trying to kill me you know that was the uh, <laughs> uh, that was the progression that uh, that we had i wouldn't say i'm uh, uh, like i said i'm not a natural pilot uh, at all i have to work really hard to uh, to get the success um and so i did have to work quite hard to uh, keep the thing in the right right direction and do what I wanted it to do. And is it true that uh, it took about four to five seconds from pushing the throttle forward to get it into reheat? Uh, no, I mean, there's, um, 
I tell, I've never put a stopwatch on it. That's the that's the thing. In in the in the Phantom, you go to the limit of dry power, and then you have to rock the throttles outboard and push them into burner. Then, as soon as you rock the throttles outboard, the burner's light, and then you shove it all the way up to uh, uh, full burner. And it was it was kind of carefree handling at most most uh, levels, and and you'd feel the kick up your backside. Uh, I I always thought almost straight away, but it's, it's probably because I was so maxed out about what was going on <laughs> I wasn't on top of my game yeah up at higher levels though you needed to be a little bit more careful with the engines because if you try and slam them the the, the the pressure builds up and they just surge and and make a bit of a bang mm -hmm. so uh, a little bit more gentle lighting the burner um, up at higher levels. so maybe that's where you uh, you know people tell you this whole thing of takes about four seconds for the thing to uh, mm -hmm. to light it always seemed to be blooming instant uh, <laughs> for me yeah. So let's talk about what was it like being on a first like frontline squadron. Uh, that was um, I, I couldn't wait to get to the front line all the way through training because all I'd heard was it was it was the best time of your life and it absolutely was. Um, it ticked every single box I was uh, I was looking for. Uh, training was hard. People said the front line was hard, but by that time I. By the time I got to the front line, I think I had something like 350 hours under my belt. Wow. And so the learning curve was steep, but it, it, uh, I should have been able to uh, deal with it, and I, and I, and I could. Uh, but it was everything. The aeroplane was brilliant. Uh, the, uh, my squadron mates were, you know, just off the charts, good, They're friends for life. And they say your first tour should be the best time of your life, and it absolutely was. Is that true yeah. for most pilots, would you say, or aircrew? I think um, I think we all look back with a bit of um, nostalgia and romance about uh, about first tours. I, I know some people who have hated their their first tour. All I could say is that of all of us, that I, my first tour was on 92 Squadron out in RF Germany. I got brilliant uh, history, and I always used to look into the history of my squadrons to see what I had to live up to. You know, <laughs> all these people that had gone before and, and made names for them names for themselves. So I. Um, uh, always did that, and I don't know anybody who had 92 Squadron as their first tour and hated it. You know, it was just, it's just a special number and, and, and got some special history, you know. Yeah, I've heard that many occasions. Yeah, yeah, I bet, yeah. Yeah, but everybody else that tells you about other yeah. squadrons, they're all, they're all wrong. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So did you ever conduct a DACT in the Phantom, and how did it fare? Yeah, so we um, DACT was uh, was a big deal on fighter squadrons. Every fighter squadron you go to will will do quite a lot of um, dissimilar air combat. Um, now the thing about the Phantom was when I got onto it, it was one of the oldest fighters on the block. There were still some F-104s around that the Germans were still flying, and that was a rocket ship, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, but the Phantom was probably the second oldest fighter out there. So we shouldn't have had any success whatsoever against F-15s, F-16s, F-18s, all of those uh, kind of things that were out there. But actually, from a, um, uh, from a uh, DACT point of view, I think prob we probably uh, won 80% of the fights that, that we were in. And that's not an idle boast. But it's nothing to do with the, um, uh, the manoeuvring of the aeroplane. There were some pilots on my Phantom squadrons that could turn the Phantom inside out. I was not one of those one of those guys. I knew what I was good at. I knew what I wasn't particularly good at, and I knew what my aeroplane was good at and, and wasn't particularly good at. Um, but we, when it came to tactics and just low down aggression, and it was almost it was almost like we were off the hook. You know, everybody expected to beat the Phantom, and they got a massive shock when they um, when they didn't. 
because of our mindset mostly. If people flew their fancy jets as well as they could, we didn't stand a chance. Uh, but that didn't stop us thinking we could win every fight that, that we went into. And um, like I said, I think we had a lot more success than we really should have done. Did you ever get to fire live weapons on the Phantom? I did. I, fl I fired one. It was, a, um, it was a Sparrow missile. So by that time we had the Skyflash, very similar missiles. But there were still some old uh, Sparrows in the inventory. And so once in a while they dust these things off, you know, <laughs> and uh, uh, clean all the bird crap off them from the, uh, from the hangars and, and go, oh, God, this thing's going out of date, we probably need to launch it. And uh, so we go to Valley um, and do it all in Cardigan Bay. Uh, they'd launch a um, remote aircraft out of St. Athen that carried a, uh, a radar towed device. Uh, we'd lock that up and, uh, and fire it. So I, I remember firing my, um, my first missile it was an AIM-7 Sparrow, really old one, and uh, we were doing a, a ridiculous visual shot, um, and I had to keep the target uh, right in the middle of the gun sight, all the way through, mm. so that it would track. Mm. Uh, it didn't have much hope of, uh, of working. Anyway, I tracked this, uh, this thing like a god uh, for, uh, for about 10, 11 seconds, and the G increased all the way through it as we were passing. And uh, apparently I heard the bang and the whoosh as this thing went off the aeroplane. It was really spectacular. And then tracked and tracked and tracked, but didn't see it go past the target. And then uh, having tracked all this time, uh, the photo chase then said, oh yeah, track for about half a second and then buggered <laughs> off into the sea, you know. So, uh, uh, so that, was my, uh, that was my first um, uh, introduction to firing weapons live. I'd fired guns uh, before on, uh, on the Hawk, dropped uh, practice bombs, but this was the first proper fighter pilot weapon thing. You probably have many a story, but maybe can you share one that sticks out in your mind for our viewers? Yeah, I think, um, uh, I think this is it. When a, when a pilot gives up flying, all he does is talk about flying. So I, I, I can bore you for hours uh, with stories. I think probably the thing that sticks in my mind most, it, crashing on landing is probably, uh, is probably the thing that, that jumps out the most. So I, I just got to Germany. I had about 100 hours on the jet and we were night flying doing a workup trip uh, for me, came into land and um, there was this big crack and the nose wheel broke mm. forwards. Now if it was going to break it would normally come back into the wheel well, uh, but it broke forwards so uh, I was sitting there at, at an odd angle like that, um, about 160 knots, the radome was cutting a groove in the runway and we were covered in sparks, all of these um, captions went off. Uh, so the caption panel was lit up like a Christmas tree. My navigator called Mayday. We've crashed, um, and uh, and I had to bring the thing to a uh, to a halt. But we had no brakes, um, and our friction was going to stop us anyway. But if we didn't stop by the overrun cable, um, this big steel cable at the end of the runway would come up the radome through my canopy and probably cut mm. me in half, sort of thing. So I was under a bit of pressure to bring the aircraft to a halt, and uh, there was this uh, reversionary braking mode on the Phantom called uh, elephant foot braking. Absolutely true. Uh, and if you put, I don't know, it's like a million pounds of pressure through the toe brakes, uh, it mechanically pushes the uh, brake disc together. It's not a million pounds, but you know, I do <laughs> yeah, know yeah. what it is. But I tell you what, I probably put a million pounds of pressure through those uh, toe brakes because it was the scariest thing I'd ever done up to that uh, point. 
brought the thing to a halt. There was a bit of a fire behind. The fire crews put it out, and uh, that was it. I just, I just thought I was some massive hero until the next day when uh, when the boss didn't speak to me he spoke to my navigator to find out how hard my landing was uh, to see if it was my fault you know and uh, luckily uh, by the end of the day um, they did an investigation it was a the whole fleet was grounded because of huge um, metal fatigue in the uh, in the nose gear struts so uh, you know tug was in the clear for um, <clears throat> for another week or so until I screwed up the next time, no doubt. Yeah. So no bollocking that time. <laughs> uh, 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 well, actually, it was even worse. He blanked me. The boss yeah, just didn't worse, look at that. Yeah. even worse. You know, <laughs> yeah. I could have taken a could have taken a bollocking, but not uh, not the silence. So uh, yeah, so that kind of um, focuses your mind, I think, right at the start of your first tour. Absolutely. You know. So how would you sum up the Phantom? Oh, I adored it. I absolutely adored it. It turned, I think it turned me into the man that I am today. I think the, not just the aeroplane, uh, but the, um, the camaraderie of the people on that, uh, on that fleet. We were, uh, every, every aircrew you'll talk, you'll talk to a buccaneer guy, he'll say it was the best fleet out there and we were special people and the lightning guys will say the same thing, the Harrier guys will tell you that. Um, but we truly believe that, and uh, and I think I, th I I miss it to this day. I'd I'd love to fly it again. I, I really would, um, but it it had its time, and 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 that was that. But you know, looking back with a rose-tinted spectacles, uh, there's nothing about it I, I I I could fault. You know. So Tug, you also had an exchange on the F-18 with the Marines. Tell us how this exchange came about. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> luckiest man in the RAF and most hated man in the RAF as well. So um, there were maybe 30 fast jet exchanges around the world, um, lots with European Air Forces, Australia, um, and a lot in the United States. And so every year on my annual, re annual report, you had to put down what, what you want to do on your next tour. I always put American Exchange. I didn't care what I flew just something different and, uh, and something kind of sexy. Mm -hmm. And out of nowhere, I, um, I got a call from the station commander. I was a flying instructor at the time at Valley. And uh, a lot of exchanges were going from, um, from that TAC weapons area. So I complained about TAC weapons. I then became a TAC weapons instructor. Um, but I did it because I thought, if I'm gonna get an exchange tour, this is my best chance. I, I'll, I'm not shining enough, I think, compared to everybody else at the front line. I was new on the Phantom, there were some superstars there getting exchanges. So I thought I'll take a bit of pain and go and live at Valley for three years, hone my skills and maybe get some qualifications and, uh, and, and that'll be that. And it worked out. And uh, the station commander rang me, said, how do you fancy F-18s with the Marine Corps at El Toro in California? Um, uh, which but there was no. I'm going to think about this. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely none of uh, no. I can't tell you what I exactly said over the uh, over the phone, and that was it. Just fell uh, fell into my uh, into my. I, I say that I I tried to um, I tried to shape myself a little bit while I was a while I was an instructor and do the best job that I could and get some quals and and I was just the right name in the frame at the time. Mm -hmm. Was there a lot of competition though between the pilots uh, at the time to go for these exchanges? Yeah, we all um, you say competition. I mean, we weren't. Um, there wasn't like a selection board that we all went and interviewed for. You just put it on your annual report every year. Right. And everybody that I knew wanted to do an exchange, because we got to fly. <clears throat> if you went to the right places, you got to fly 
the best fighters or bombers out there at the uh, at the time. So a, a friend of mine ended up uh, doing the Norwegian exchange, and you think, God, you know, living in Norway, how cold it is. You're flying an F-16. You know, is it a great, uh, great time, great aeroplane. Um, there were two exchanges I thought were the plum exchanges. One was F-18s in Australia, uh, because that was the, like living in an exotic oh, place. Yeah. And the other one was F-18s in California, and uh, lucky, lucky me, yeah. Was there a selection though, because uh, there was no uh, F-14 Tomcat uh, like exchanges or anything like that? Was it just like you get in home and that's it? Yeah, there was, it basically, if you were coming up for posting, whichever one was, uh, was coming up, uh, I guess they, they looked at um, annual reports, they looked at how we were doing professionally. We, we had an annual report to, to tell the Air Force how we were as officers in the Air Force, but we also had something called the Form 5000, which was how you were doing from a flying point of view. Mm -hmm. So we had two annual reports really as air crew and um, <clears throat> so they'll have looked at uh, where people were suited for it. Now I was, a, um, I was a fighter pilot, not a bomber pilot, so I wasn't going to get an exchange onto um, an F-16 ground attack unit, um, but uh, the F-18 was absolutely multi-role. The job was supposed to be OCU instructor. Um, and my predecessor had done that for a little bit and went, well, this is a waste of time, managed to wheedle himself onto the front line and ended up on uh, 314 Squadron, which was the one of the premier wow. single-seat units. So um, I go over there knowing that I'm going to the front line. I just don't know which squadron. And it was, it, it was an even better dream come yeah, true, yeah, you know. Say, yeah. Rather than be a, a, a OCU instructor and sit in the back for quite a few of your trips, I was going to be on the on the front line. So even even better than the best deal ever. Absolutely. And is, was it unusual for a two seat pilot to go for essentially a single seat pilot uh, role like the Hornet? No, not necessarily. By that time, um, if I'd um, I could have gone at the end of the Phantom because because I've got a frontline tour underneath me. Um, even though I didn't um, uh, probably get. Uh, a single-seat recommend out of um, TAC weapons, mm -hmm. so, which is why I went to a two-seat aeroplane. Um, by the time I finished a frontline tour, I should be able to fly a single-seat um, jet anyway. Um, and, plus the fact I just spent three years teaching air combat and low-level ground attack, mostly flying on my own in a uh, in a Hawk, mm. so I, would, I, I think I was, I was kind of suited for it. The irony was, I arrived, did the OCU, the first half of my tour on the Hornet, I was in Twin Seat Hornets, yeah. uh, F-18D. Um, and then the second half, um, it was like the Wild West. I went and uh, <laughs> I was on single seat Hornets, but on a reserve unit. Right. So uh, these are all <clears throat> airline pilots who flew airliners during the week and led a four-ship of Hornets at the weekend. It was, was it like the National Guard kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, a little bit like that. Yeah. Air National Guard uh, 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 reserves, all, all very, uh, very similar. It was fantastic, yeah. it, it really was, yeah. And where were you going to be located? So I'd, I um, was expecting to stay at El Toro, which is in Orange County, uh, maybe about 45 minutes south of LA, uh, which is a nice place, uh, but inland. Um, and uh, I arrived there and it, it was all very exotic and, and very nice. And then very quickly, I found out that El Toro was going to be closing and they were going to move us to uh, Miramar. 
uh, and I'd, oh, come on. You know, this is like, right. <laughs> it's like I've won the lottery, then you're loading up the raffle and, and now the football pools. And so I knew I was going to be moving to, uh, to Miramar after the, after the OCU. We lived in uh, Ocean Beach in San Diego and, uh, and I flew Hornets out of the Top Gun hangar at Miramar. Did so, you ever think someone's winding me up here? This I did think, <laughs> I do wonder whether I slept through all of that or I was in a coma or something and it didn't actually, uh, actually happen, so yeah. yeah. So yeah, how long was the process from, yeah, I guess, like when you first heard to, you know, putting your boots down in America? I think we're probably looking at uh, seven, eight months or so. Um, so it was announced um, that I was getting the, uh, getting the tour and that there's all sorts of stuff you've got to go through before going on, uh, on exchange. So I needed to do a uh, officer's command course, which was uh, three weeks away from flying. Uh, PV interviews, all sorts of uh, all sorts of things to um, actually gear me up, and a lot of stuff happening in the background to gear us up as a family to to go across the state. So it was probably eight months all told. And then when I first arrived, my predecessor, we had a really good six month handover. Mm. So uh, normally you'd, you'd turn up, your predecessor would have a couple of weeks, and then they'd scoot. Uh, but he'd said that it's so difficult to get um, to get going with the Marines. Um, it's best to uh, do like a six-month handover. So, uh, and he was brilliant. Uh, he was brilliant with us. You know, uh, got me squared away and, and good to go. Any stuff. So, did you and the family stay on base, or were you based out uh, most of the time? No, we didn't get the option of um, we didn't get the option of staying on base. I don't even know what the quarter situations uh, were like at El Toro and uh, Miramar. So, in the first, we had two weeks uh, when we arrived. In that time, we had to find a house to rent. Two cars, uh, driving licenses, insurances, everything. Basically, starting your life from scratch. Um, you had two weeks to uh, to do it, so it was fairly intense. Uh, but we found uh, we found a lovely place to live in um, Orange County, uh, with some nice uh, landlords. Um, and then we did exactly the same thing again um, when we moved down to uh, to San Diego. But we were able to do that in a bit more slow time find a place so expert, down there. oh yeah look at that yeah i was practically american by then yeah yeah so how were you welcomed when you got to america so i've um, i've always said this um uh, about the marines i love the marine corps absolutely i love their ethos of uh, you know it's core god country um all of that stuff you see on films and everybody thinks it's uh, it's hollywood it's not they truly believe that their their band of brothers and sisters is off the charts and i i love them for that and I got the impression the OCU wasn't brilliant uh, the way it was uh, the way it was handled. It was way too long uh, right. for me, and because I was just a student on the OCU, I, I wasn't. The staff knew I wasn't going to be staying there and becoming an instructor with them. Yeah. As soon as I arrived on my first frontline unit, it was VMFA 121 at uh, at Miramar. I reckon within 10 minutes. I felt as though those Marines would walk over broken glass for me because I was wearing their badges. Uh, it didn't matter that I was British. All of a sudden, I'm on that squadron, yeah. and, and that was that. And I'd, I'd not felt that since my first tour in, in Germany. And it, it was it was intensely passionate uh, like that. And that's, I, that's what I love the Marine Corps. Absolutely did you, did you feel intimidated when you first arrived? Like, oh God, what they're gonna think about this Brit or anything like that? Oh yeah, I mean, I've, um, all the way through my flying, um, I've, I've always had a little bit of this imposter syndrome that I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite good enough to get this. I've, I've got it as a fluke and, uh, and stuff like that. And, and what that induce, induces you to do is work, work really hard. Uh, I never, like I said, I never thought I was a natural pilot. So 
uh, there was always that that little thing of oh, do you know what could they have got somebody better for this you're also representing your air force and your country so there's a bit of um, there's a bit of pressure on you but like i said um it was i felt not a feeling of comfort on the OCU, but that's because I was out of uh, what, I, what I was uh, uh, recognised and, and such like that. But as soon as I got to my first squadron, um, it was back to being on a fighter squadron, even though it's a multi-role uh, thing. But it was it was that whole camaraderie thing again, and, and just helped me slot in straight away. Yeah, and we're going to get into a bit of detail about that. So, yeah, what were your first thoughts of the Hornet? Uh, I mean, what what would your first thoughts be? You know, this I, th- I thought it was like a spaceship. <laughs> uh, I climbed in it. Bearing in mind, I'd only flown the Phantom and the Hawk, um, uh, and, and it's not the Hawk with the nice displays. It's T1 and T1A. Uh, I got in there. There's like three television screens and a head-up display. I've never flown a head-up display before, and um, and I I thought, my God, this is this is just it's a different world absolutely different world you get to uh, you get to get airborne the, aer- the airplane handles like any other airplane you, know, you pull back on the stick the houses get smaller you push forward they get bigger uh, so all of that stuff is exactly the same however it could turn itself inside out which was uh, pretty spectacular but that impression was that um, nothing else looks like the hornet all right there's plenty of airplanes that have got twin fins but. but they're not angled out <laughs> like that you know and it just it just looks like somebody's gone um here's the keys to the design office come up with something outrageous and surprises and 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 i think they surprised them even more with that with that airplane <laughs> it was just spectacular absolutely yeah. yeah so talk us through your training on the hornet before you went to your frontline squadron and how did it differ from the ref yeah, it was all a bit. Uh, it was all a bit odd. Um, I, um, I hate to talk things down. The OCU wasn't wasn't great. So ground school was all um, computer aided instruction. Okay. So um, y- you basically doing the training for yourself, and for twelve weeks of it. So this is the first three months I'm in the country. I can't see half of the ground school because of secret, no foreign uh, rules and wow. such like that. So I was going into radar simulator trainers with these sim instructors who were all XF4 guys and Hornet guys and um, and they were asking these questions you know, what's the uh, pulse repetition frequency of the radar at such and such and I was sitting there going oh, I don't know <laughs> what do you mean you don't know well you won't let me look at any other documents so what happened was after a couple of these where it was all getting a little bit antsy all these extra all these XF4 uh, guys went well I tell you what will teach you everything you need to know. And they took me under their wing and they were brilliant. Flying was, I mean, slow in the extreme. One trip every couple of weeks and and whatnot. Really? Yeah, I mean, it was really bad. But there were were like three courses of students on the the OCU at the time. So um, all the senior courses had to fly in order to get them to the front line. But it was was a really slow, slow affair. Do you know what, so much so, uh, I have to confess uh, various uh, various things. Um, one night, one afternoon, everybody had gone home early. I mean, it was a beautiful flying day, but everybody had gone home, so no aeroplanes flying. I found myself in the ops room, and um, and they had your um, work up on a on a big board behind the ops desk with uh, boxes, and they ticked them when you'd uh, passed them. And uh, there were red crosses through some of mine because I didn't need to do as much as everybody else. So I just picked up a red pen and 
crossed a few others out and uh, the next thing was I found myself passing the OCU quite quickly and ended up on the front line. I'd, I'd, I think I'd still be there if I hadn't, if I hadn't done that. That's, that was how it felt, you know. Uh, we're, we're pilots and we want to get on and, and do stuff. So uh, that was how the training went. And then went to the squadron. There was a bit of um, air combat workup um, just because the, the F-18 was so magical in air combat but you could catch yourself out uh, quite quite easily if you thought it was it could do things that it, it couldn't actually there wasn't very much it couldn't do but we, we always try and find those bits um, so I had a bit of air combat work up and then holy moly I was uh, I was then teaching air combat because I'd taught it previously I then started teaching air combat very quickly on the on the first squadron and and just learning on the job really there was no formal work up after that and can you remember your first takeoff and could you actually feel the, uh, the afterburner sorry uh, when you kicked them in compared to the phantom yeah so first takeoff in the hornet you did dry power oh, okay yeah because you didn't need the afterburner yeah, isn't that brilliant you know absolutely brilliant uh, the the phantom you needed afterburner you know you needed every inch of the runway and uh, and off it went yeah first takeoff in the hornet was dry power which, to tell you the truth, is a bit disappointing. I, I kind of wanted to slam them into burner, um, but it still it still lurched off, and uh, and off we went. So I did my first burner takeoff, as every pilot tells you. It doesn't matter what aeroplane uh, they're in, if it's got afterburner, it's a kick up the ass, <laughs> and it's the best feeling in uh, in the world. And the Hornet was no uh, was no no different. The um, uh, I remember flying my first single-seat Hornet, because to start off with you're in twin seats with instructors. My first single-seat Hornet, they call it the straight. The, the twin seats are called the tub. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got the straight. I flew the straight and it was, a, it was an F-18C uh, Charlie model. Uh, it had the big General Electric engines in. Uh, I put the burners in and I thought I was, I thought it, next stop Hawaii basically uh, <laughs> by the time I'd uh, got the gear up and, uh, uh, and whatnot and uh, it, it took my breath away. Yeah. So how did the aircraft handle and can you share some of the strengths and weaknesses of the Hornet? Yeah so um, if we go strengths, um, everything it did. And, and I, I, I don't say that as, uh, you know, because I flew the Hornet, it's obviously the best aeroplane in the world. Bear in mind there was no F-22 or F-35 in these days. The Hornet did things that other aeroplanes couldn't do. It was unlimited in angle of attack. Uh, the engines were carefree handling, so it didn't matter what altitude you were at, you could just slam them up to full burner, slam them back to idle and they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't complain. Um, and it, it was the first I think they called it like a soft wing aeroplane where you put an input in all sorts of stuff will move on the aeroplane normally if you go left the ailerons will move the one on the mm. left will go up and the one on the right will go down if I remember my aerodynamics in the Hornet you want to go left you go left it'll decide which surface it's going to move uh, and that includes quite a bit of the uh, quite a bit of the rudder the rudders are very important in the flying solution so um, I, I, I use the phrase all the time I could turn myself inside out with that uh, with that airplane um, I, I know we all do uh, hands as pilots <laughs> if I'm um, I was on one particular trip and I'd flush somebody out in front of me now if I want to shoot him normally in any other airplane I'd have to overbank and pull down uh, like that. In the Hornet you don't do that. I, I was in this position once and I just thought well he's down there and I shoved the stick front right in the cockpit and the aeroplane just went like that 
and it was, uh, I mean, I just thought I'd died and gone to heaven. <laughs> I absolutely did. Now, no other aeroplane did that at the, at the time. So handling wise, that, uh, that was why it was different from everything else. Mm. Strengths, it was the best dogfighting aeroplane in the world. I don't care what anybody else says, it absolutely was. We could be anybody in that aeroplane if you did the right, uh, the right tactics. Um, it could carry anything. Um, and the F-18D in particular did uh, forward air control airborne, so we'd have a FAC in the, oh, in the right. back, right. Uh, bringing other aeroplanes in to, uh, to attack. We could attack those targets ourselves, we could mark them with, uh, uh, with flares. We could call in uh, naval gunfire uh, from off the coast. It did absolutely everything. Um, uh, carried harms, so it would uh, shoot uh, SAM sites as, uh, as well. So b brilliant, absolutely brilliant aeroplane. You can, you can tell I'm a fan, can't you? Yeah, you can, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, then it's been a multi-role aircraft. Yeah. Did it do one job better than the other, would you say? Um, I, I can't put my finger on it. I, to tell you the truth, I, um, I learned quite a lot about um, ground attack on that aeroplane. I was fortunate, very fortunate in that there was a, um, a British backseater from the Tornado GR1 on uh, exchange mm. with me, Gav, and he was, he was a brilliant guy. And uh, he taught me quite a lot about uh, ground attack while I was learning, uh, learning on the job. Um, I think it was a great ground attack uh, aeroplane. I think it was very accurate uh, with, uh, with what it dropped. Without laser, once it carried um, uh, uh, laser-guided uh, munitions as well, it was even more accurate. Mm. So uh, I don't think there was anything you could fault it. It maybe couldn't carry, well, it certainly couldn't carry as much as an F-15S, uh, uh, sorry, F-15E. Um, uh, couldn't carry as much as a B1B, of course, and a B52, <laughs> but for um, for it was the best close air support aeroplane um, that the Americans had as well, uh, as far as carrying stuff. For uh, it was much better than the Harrier. It was probably um, up to speed with the A10 because that was really cooling close uh, close air support as well. Airborne, um, uh, sorry, upper air uh, type stuff, um, fighter pilot stuff. Um, why wouldn't you want to be in it? It carried AMRAM, it carried the latest uh, edition of AIM-9 Sidewinder, uh, it could outturn an F-15, we could beat an F-16, although it was a hard, uh, hard fought um, uh, fight, but yeah, it, uh, I, I can't think of a weakness uh, for it. Apart from, it was a bit light on top end speed. So if you wanted to run away from a fight, um, it took quite a bit to get to 1.2, running away other aeroplanes f-16 had, had easily overhaul something like that would you have to be clean if you like uh no you could uh pilots we never flew the thing completely clean so you'd have uh, pylons we generally flew with the centerline uh, mm -hmm. tank um and it would uh, it would go through the mac uh, quite happily uh, uh there it's just it's it's really high top end speed wasn't wasn't that that great so yeah, you were talking about the best dogfighter in the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So did you uh, manage to do a lot of DACT? I'm, I'm guessing you went up against everything in America. That uh, we did, and um, you know, most of my life, I, I think, or the majority of the, the trips that I did uh, were DACT. And um, we, we took on everybody. Uh, what, was, uh, what was interesting was when I was on the um, reserve unit, we flew brown hornets. So they were camouflage oh, yes. brown. Yeah. 
Um, so everybody thought we were an aggressor squadron, but we weren't. But everybody wanted to fight against us over the desert because of Iraq and Afghanistan and, and such like that. And, um, and we were difficult to see in that, uh, in that desert, uh, desert camp. But the bottom line is when we got into just pure, uh, combat as a, a whole range of things, you know, we're normally flying 4v4s, 8v8s, uh, 2v2s and stuff. When it gets to the proper hand-to-hand -hand type stuff of 1v1, um, there was nothing that could touch that, uh, that aeroplane. Hardest fight that we had was uh, probably the F-16 because it had an end, the F-16 weighs about 16 grams <laughs> and has an engine that's as strong as a, uh, powerful as a nuclear reactor. So they, they would try and outrate us and they could pull 9G as well. Yeah. We were limited to seven and a half. Um, but um, if, we, if we were able to get the fight slow, nobody but nobody could fly as slow as a Hornet. I've flown a Hornet at 80 knots in air combat. Uh, really? Flushed somebody out the front and just pointed the nose at them and gunned them. That knots. was an F-16 guy. Yeah, unbelievable, Crikey. absolutely unbelievable. Right on the edge of uh, of the stall, and F-16 would be falling out the sky at 120 or 110 somewhere around there. So we'd always, um, <clears throat> I would always take those guys slow if I could, try and flush them out the front and uh, and do it like that. Mm -hmm.